0: Which how many of you, have you ever asked yourself that before? You're just kind of going through life, maybe it's a rough day, you look in the mirror and you're like, what, what am I doing? What am, what am I doing with my life? And, and that's what we're asking in this series, what are we doing with our lives and what are we doing with our church? And if you've if you jumped into that book yet, you'll know that there are five purposes that it focuses on. Spoiler alert, I'm going to reveal all five right now. The first one is worship. The second one is fellowship and discipleship in ministry and evangelism. And today we're going to be taking a look at the worship part of things. How many of you in here enjoy worship? Anybody? If you don't raise your hand, you're going to look real weird. Um, Yeah, we're going to talk about worship. And I remember some of the first real in-depth conversations I heard about worship actually took place when I was in college doing my undergrad. It was in the early 2000s. NSYNC was still on the radio. It was a good time. And uh, in the seminary, in the church world, there was this thing going on that we called the worship wars. Not near as cool as it sounds. Because when I hear that in my head, I think of like worship bands from like West Side and Core battling in an open field, but that is not it. It was a time where people started asking the question, what, what is the right way to worship? What does real worship look like? And, and there was a group of people, especially in my tradition of being a, a Southern Baptist that said, well, worship has to look like you coming in and sitting on a pew and singing a song that is at least 100 years old and has 16 verses. Anything other than that, that is not worship. But then there was a group of people over here who said, no, you can come and you could sit in comfortable chairs and, and there can be a guitar on stage, there can be drums, you can plug in some of the instruments and, and we can sing the same 11 words 11,000 times. And those two groups went to war with each other. And in fact, it even split churches up. Sometimes literally, where the church would turn into two churches. Or sometimes within the same church, you would have two services. One to please this crowd, and one to please this crowd. And we're going to talk about how it's not bad to have a unique way of worshiping. But the problem is is in the midst of a war like that, we can lose sight of what it's all about. I remember hearing a story of a church that had one of these. I believe that's called an organ. I looked it up online. And this was one of those churches that was going through this kind of transition, asking that question, what does worship look like? And they could not decide whether they were going to keep the organ and use it or not. And so depending on who was leading worship that week, they would actually have people come in and move the organ. They would get a bunch of guys together to lift up and move the organ to another place so it wouldn't get in the way, or it was the center of attention, depending on what they wanted. Finally, the pastor got sick of it and took matters into his own hands. And uh, finally, the board got curious and said, Where did the organ go? Like, we haven't seen it in weeks. It just disappeared. What did you do with it? It wasn't cheap. We would like to know. And he said, well, I I placed it in the baptismal tank because that's the one place that's not being used right now. (laughs) I like that. Somebody over there was like, ooh, pastor burn. Yeah. Yeah. And while that story might come off a little cheesy or cliche, I think there's something to that, that we can get so caught up in what we want that we miss what this is all about. Because the truth is, people get passionate about worship. Let's have a little real talk. How many of you have ever walked out of this building and turned to your spouse or your friend and said, I did not like that song. That, that is just not, nope. Anybody? Or how many on the flip side, how many of you have ever heard us fire up one of those songs? Maybe it was an old favorite of yours, and the inner kid part of you was like, yay! Build your kingdom here! Anybody? Anybody? Yet yeah, we get passionate. In fact, I was hanging out with a group of worship people a little while back, and uh, They were talking about different songs and styles, and one of them piped up and said, well, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on how we should do worship. And the leader kind of under their breath goes, yeah, don't you all, don't you all? (laughs) And we all do, we have different ideas of what worship should look like. So today we're gonna dive into a story in John four, where Jesus encounters a woman and they have a conversation about worship that I think can kind of help us understand this this topic a little bit better. And and here's how that story begins. It said, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. So this story even kind of starts with a group of people discussing how worship should be, who should be doing the baptizing. And so Jesus is actually kind of escaping that argument. And it says he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now to understand what's going on here, we need a little geography lesson and a little history lesson. Geography wise, um, we read about these stories in the Bible And sometimes we forget how small this area is because we live in this giant country where you can drive and drive and drive forever and not feel like you got anywhere. In fact, I actually performed a wedding at the church last night here and some of the people had driven from Colorado. How many of you have ever driven across Kansas and wanted to die? Yes, we live in a very big country with a lot of land. But where these stories take place in the Bible in Palestine, from from top to bottom, it's about 120 miles. That's it. It would only take a few days to to make that journey. But but it was divided up into kind of three sections. At the very top, there was Galilee, and then below that, there was Samaria and Judea. And a bit of history behind those two, Um, those bottom two, they hated each other. And they had for a long time. At one point in Israel's history, they had divided up into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom, and then they were exiled. The people were taken to different places. And, and the Judea, the southern kingdom, they decided that they were going to stay true to their roots. They were not going to let go of their, their Jewish heritage, and so they, they held tight to that. But the other group that would eventually become Samaria, they went off and they began to incorporate other parts of other cultures into their own traditions. And when they moved back, there was was this opinion from those in Judea that the Samaritans, they had sold out. They were mutts. They were no longer pure bread. And so we, we are the true people of God. And you are just sinners, and we want to have nothing to do with you. And for 450 years, this tension continued, and it built up. This was truly a KUK state situation, except a little bit more extreme. And so when people would travel, you could see this map here, When people would travel, a lot of Judeans who didn't want to have to interact with those dirty Samaritans, they would take the route. It's a a red dotted line that goes off to the right here, where they would go way out of their way around Jericho. They would cross the Jordan. They would travel north that way, and then they would cut back into Galilee, completely missing Samaria altogether. It had about three days to their trip. But they were so disgusted by these people, they thought it was worth it. Now, if you were brave and just took the straight route, which is that blue dotted line in the middle, it would take about three days. It was a much easier trip, but you ended up in enemy territory. And so it's interesting that Jesus uses this line there when it said they had to go through Samaria because they didn't have to. They could have taken the long route. And so I wonder if what's being referred to there is not a literal, he had to because that was the only road, but he had to because there was someone there he needed to interact with, that he needed to reach out to. Even in the beginning of this story, we see a God that is constantly seeking you. A a God that goes where you are and and I hope you you can grasp how powerful that is that we have a god that chases us that won't leave us alone A few weeks ago, Dan talked about Jonah and that story. And I love how he gets so frustrated in the middle of it because he has tried to run from God so hard, go the other direction. He ends up in the belly of a fish or a whale, whatever it is, and God is still trying to talk to him. Do you know how frustrating that would be? You're swallowed by a fish and your one positive thought is, I don't have to deal with God anymore. And then God's like, "Hey, guess what? I'm here." God seeks us out. He follows us. I love when we do the song Reckless Love because there's that bridge when it, when it says that there's no wall that he won't knock down. Like the Kool-Aid guy, God will bust through that wall. He will find you. He will seek you out. And I love that thought. Because sometimes I don't have the strength to come to God like I need to. To humble myself and to to go and find God. But to know that there is a God that is seeking and going and finding me. Gives me a lot of hope. And it makes me realize just how much God loves me. The story goes on. It said, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. It says, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And so not only does this story contain this barrier of these Jewish individuals, this rabbi and his disciples walking through enemy territory and interacting with a Samaritan, it's not just a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan woman. And rabbis did not speak to women in public, especially a Samaritan woman, who if you keep reading the story has a pretty shady past and reputation. In fact, there was one group of Pharisees that were so adamant about not talking to women. They they were so worried that that would damage their reputation and make it difficult for them to do ministry that they earned the nickname the Bleeding and Bruised Pharisees because when they would see a woman who tried to interact with them, they would close their eyes, turn and run the other direction and they often ran into things. How would you like to be in the lobby one Sunday and walk up to Dan and be like, it's really good to see you, pastor. And he closes his eyes and slams into the glass door. As as much as I'd like to see that, it would be pretty ridiculous. And that's what these Pharisees would do because they didn't want the reputation of talking to a woman. And here Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman who already has a shady past and a bad reputation. And what I love about that is it shows once again that there is no barrier, that God won't break through to get to you, to to have that conversation with you. I once had a friend who came to hear me preach, and uh, we were good friends in high school, but uh, she hadn't gone to church in years. And she told me, I really want to come hear you, but I'm scared that when I walk in the door, I'm going to burst into flames, or someone is going to try to perform an exorcism. Can can you promise that that will not happen? And, And I said yes, and we laughed, but it kind of broke my heart that even jokingly, that worry was there. Because I don't care who you are. God wants have that conversation with you. God wants to interact with you. I, I, I love how Dan always introduces communion by saying, regardless of what your past is, and I would see regardless of what your present is, God still wants to engage with you. You could be having the absolute worst week where you have done everything wrong. You have more sins than we can count. You are sitting here ashamed of who you are. God wants to have that conversation. He wants to interact with you this morning because He is a God that seeks you out and he goes where you are. He turns to that Samaritan woman and he said, if you only knew the gift God has for you, This is a woman who's not even supposed to have any access to God. And Jesus, the Messiah, is saying, if you only knew the gift he has for you and who you are speaking to, you would have asked me and I would have given you the living water. He goes on, he says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, referring to the well. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving eternal life. Now, I've talked before about that phrase, eternal life, and how so often we misunderstand that in church. We hear eternal life and we think, oh, heaven, that, that thing that happens when I die. And, and that is partly true, but partly false, because I believe that eternal life happens right now. Eternal life is what happens when we enter into a relationship with God and begin to live at one with him right now, in the here and now, in our everyday lives. We begin to experience eternal life. Or as one translator puts it, God quality life. And so Jesus is telling the last person on earth he should be talking to I want to give you God-quality life. God wants to bless you. God wants you to experience eternal life. So the woman, she is now fully invested in the conversation, but she's a little bit confused. She says, sir, you must be a prophet So tell me, why is it the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Now to understand what's going on here, you have to understand that there are two mounts that we are talking about. There is one in Jerusalem called Mount Zion or the Temple Mount. This is where Jews go to worship. This is the temple we read about in the Bible. But the Samaritans, feeling broke off from God's people, they they did a little rewriting of their own history. And they had their own mount, the second one here, and they said, no, that's where all the holy things in the Bible happened. So we're going to go there to worship. So even here in this first century Palestinian conversation, that debate is raging on, what does worship look like? Does it look like the first mount or the second mount? Where do we go to experience God? Do we go to the one with the organ or without the organ? I don't know, Jesus. Where do we go? What is the right way to worship? What does real worship look like? And Jesus gives an answer that I absolutely love. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming When it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But, but a time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and for those to worship him must worship in spirit and truth. One commentary I read kind of helped define this. They said, spirit, this is the emotional part of worship that comes from the heart. Truth, this is the, the mind, the mental part of worship that comes from the learning." And so often we forget to have those two together, don't we? I, uh, I traveled with a Christian drama group when I was in high school. I was uh, pretty cool. All <laughs> oh, the ladies um, didn't talk to me. Uh, but I traveled, I traveled with this group and we went kind of all over the Midwest performing in, in different church settings. And I'll never forget, we went to a church and it was a charismatic Pentecostal church, and I was a Southern Baptist. And it was like a reality TV show, watching me trying to take in what was happening there. It was extremely emotional. There were people, has anybody ever been to a setting like this? There were people that were crying and wailing and lying on the floor, and and there were people dancing. I think if that happened at Call Prairie, the building would collapse. But there was dancing and there were even people that were like running, literally running around the sanctuary. And I remember my drama coach looks at me knowing that I was a cross-country runner and just says, no. (laughs) No. And I just remember thinking, man, these people are so emotional. Then on the flip side, I have been at churches where there's so much information and learning and theology, but it just feels really dry and you have a hard time staying awake. Has anybody ever been to one of those churches? And if you're saying I'm there right now, please leave. Um, (laughs) Sometimes we overemphasize the emotion. Sometimes we overemphasize the mind. But God says that we have to worship in spirit and truth. It's when our hearts and our minds show up together and engage with our faith. I love that that's how he defines worship. Because that makes it more than just music or songs. It actually makes it so that everything we do this morning is a part of our worship. This message right here, this is a part of our worship. Communion, that was a part of our worship. Awkwardly not shaking people's hands, that was a part of our worship. Hearing the kids laughing with excitement as they go out there to do their lesson, that is a part of worship. When you worship in spirit and in truth. But I also think that in this very same passage, Jesus is doing something even bigger. There are several times in the Gospels where Jesus echoes this this statement right here. He tells the disciples, he said, You don't have enough faith. Jesus told them, I tell you, if you have the faith as small as even a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Anybody ever heard that before? And we teach on that verse, and, and it's very inspirational. But we often look at the, the mountain part of it and we think that that's just like a figure of speech that you'll, you'll go to take on something really big, this unmovable challenge, but it will be movable because nothing is impossible with God. And that is true. I truly believe that. But I think Jesus is also doing something else when he talks about a mountain here or when he talks about the mountain to the woman in this story because if you look where Jesus would have been standing when he said these words, over his shoulder would have been the temple mount, the most famous mount in all of the land, the one place you go to meet with God, to offer sacrifices, to worship. And Jesus is saying, you can say to this mountain, move and it will move. He's saying to the woman in the story, it's not about which mountain. It's about spirit and truth. Jesus moves worship. Worship is unleashed, worship can be anywhere. Jesus is saying it's not about the location or even the exact practices. Jesus moves worship from being an activity to being an attitude. Jesus makes worship something that can take place in Lenexa, or at work, or at school, or at home. Or how many of you that have been a part of the faith for a little bit have had that moment when you are driving around in your car and a worship song comes on and you have church? Anybody been there before? And you, you pull up to where you're going and you, you stay in your car to wait for the song to end and then you step out and you think, I just experienced God. That, that was worship. I've had moments when I've been sitting at a coffee shop in a good, meaningful conversation with somebody and we start talking about faith and life. And something happens in that moment where it feels more than just a moment in a coffee shop. It leaves me walking out the door saying, That was worship. Is this making sense to anyone? That the mountain has moved. Worship can take place anywhere, not just in Jerusalem, but in Samaria, with a woman at a well who should have never been talking to the Messiah. That can become worship. So we come back to that initial question, is what, what does worship look like? And like I said, we're all passionate about worship. We actually did a, a little survey uh, here at the church that I sent out. It was like five questions uh, about worship here at Caw Prairie. And I'm proud of you guys. Most people never fill out a survey. We had over 125 people answer that survey. And and I had a comment box on there, and you guys tested the character limit of that thing. (laughs) Sharing your thoughts on worship. And I absolutely loved hearing everything that you guys had to say. But here's what I've come to learn. Our worship is as unique as we are. This is something that Jesus understood in that moment with that woman. He was saying that worship doesn't have to look this one specific way. But it is unique and it can happen at a well. I uh, was actually talking to Ryan the other day. And Ryan said something awesome, really insightful. He said, so many people think that you have to follow God this one exact way. That all Christians have to look the exact same and worship the exact same. But he said, if that was true, then why did God make us so different? And when he said that, I remembered a moment that happened back in November when I was down in Florida. We went to one of the nature reserves there. We saw rescued dolphins. It was cool. And, uh, and my wife, she loves turtles. And so we went and saw this big thing where they rescue sea turtles. And in the middle of that demonstration, they mentioned this fact right here that there are 356 different kinds of turtles. Don't tell me that God isn't a God of variety that created us all unique when he had time to make 356 types of turtles. (laughs) And our worship is as unique as we are. It doesn't have to look the same. And the story goes on, has a pretty cool ending. So said, just then the disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? And it says, the woman left with her water jar beside the well. She was so taken by what happened, she forgot what she came into the room for. She left the jar at the well and it says that she ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Real worship spreads. Real real worship cannot be contained by a building, or even a mountain. But when real worship happens, it begins to spread. Lately, I've been uh, meeting with Dan, and and one of his friends, his name is Pastor Joe. And a few years ago, Pastor Joe felt this this calling to start a new kind of Christian community, one that didn't meet in a traditional building like this, but actually meets at Homer's Coffee Shop. And as he shares his motivation behind it, he said, we, we named it The Table because we wanted people to know that there's always a seat at the table for them to worship. And they don't even have to enter into a church to find that worship. It can happen at a well or a coffee shop. Don't you love that? We've even been talking about different ways that we might be able to partner together because we, I just love the idea of taking worship and allowing it to spread, allowing the mountain to move. The story wraps up. It says many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of what that woman said. He told me everything I ever did. And When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days. Ironically, he ends up arriving in Galilee in the same amount of time it would have taken to go around Samaria, but he had to go through there. And it said, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. We have experienced God. Now we know he is indeed savior of the world. Because of her worship, others worshiped. And and the title of this series is, What on earth is Cow Prairie here for? When I was finishing up college, I had the privilege of doing an internship at a church, the First Baptist Church of Springfield, Missouri. And this church was going through a really interesting transition. They had an interim pastor who'd come in. And at one point in time, they were the Baptist church in Missouri. If you wanted to know how to do church, you looked at the first Baptist church of Springfield. It didn't matter if you were in St. Louis or Kansas City. This was the church that people were turning to and saying, how do you do the thing you do? But their environment had changed. In the 80s, you had the flight out to the suburbs and the demographic around the church changed, but the, the church didn't change. And they went from having 1,500 worshipers a week to when I was there, less than a hundred, sitting in this big, open building. And the pastor challenged me and that congregation with a quote that I've never let go of. He said, if our church disappeared, would the people outside notice or would they just be thankful there's more free parking? And I wonder about Cal Prairie. Now, obviously, we would all notice we're here. But if this church disappeared, if the Lenexa City Center invaded us, took over the property, and we weren't here anymore, would people notice? And I hope so, because we want Cal Prairie to be a church that makes an impact. We want Cal Prairie to be a church that invites people to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's why we're having the conversations about worship that we're having. That's why we sent out the survey to talk about what kind of worship is it that allows us to connect with God best. We're all unique. Our community is unique. What does worship need to look like here to allow people to connect with God on a regular basis? In fact, that very same ministry friend, Pastor Joe, is going to come in and be interviewing some of you, just hearing your thoughts on what our church can be, what worship here can be, how we can look at these neighborhoods over here and say, Jesus wants to seek them. Jesus wants to go to them with the same message that he brought to the Samaritan woman at the well. He wants to go and say, you have no idea what a blessing God has for you. We want to be a church that goes to them and says, this is what eternal life looks like. Do you want to be a part of it? And and for me, that, that's why On Earth Call Prairie exists. That's what we're here for to help people experience eternal life, a a relationship with God, the the first of these purposes, to to worship in spirit and in truth. Do you guys wanna be a church like that? God, that's my prayer for us, that that's the kind of church we can be, and that, that we'll be a church that's willing to do whatever it takes to connect people to you. Whether that's holding another service or adding different things into our worship or a different kind of music or having a bigger this kind of ministry, that kind of ministry. God, whatever it is you need us to do to share the message of hope that you have given us, help us do that. Help us say to this mountain, move and it will move. Help us spread worship. Help us invite people to worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.